0: Welcome to the Mere Catholicity podcast, pursuing ecumenism through theological discussions and dialogues. Hey, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Mere Catholicity podcast. As always, I'm your host, Jonah Saller, and I've got a fun episode today. But as always, before I get into it, I just want to remind you guys that if you like podcasts, if you like my podcast in particular, and you enjoy... um, Just the continued content that's put out on this channel. I'd encourage you to support by clicking the link below. There you'll find a locals community. And in that community, there are like-minded Christians that are all working together to try to grow into a deeper Catholicity. So if that's of interest to you, I would appreciate you clicking the link below. If not, no worries. But in the very least, like, subscribe, share the video, all of that. Today, I am joined by Father Steve Macias. I'm very excited to have him as a guest on my channel. And today we're going to be talking about classical Christian education, which is a subject that might seem like a curveball based on what I typically do on this channel. But I think that there is a thorough Catholic theological worldview behind the movement of classical Christian education. So I think it is an important subject to talk about And as we live in a world that is progressively becoming more and more secular, it's very, very important that we know what we're up against and how to educate the upcoming generations that they might praise and glorify Christ and magnify his name in all things. So I'm grateful for Father Steve coming on today. And before we get into the subject matter itself, Father Steve, would you mind just giving an introduction, who you are, what you do for people who might not know?
1: Yeah, uh, my name's Steve Macias. I am the rector at St. Paul's uh, Anglican Church near San Francisco in the city called Los Altos. I'm in the Diocese of Mid-America in the Reformed Episcopal Church under Bishop Ray Sutton. And I'm, uh, most importantly for this conversation, the headmaster of the Canterbury School here at the same campus. And what we're going to talk about tonight, and I think really dovetails into the whole purpose of this channel, and that is the future of Christendom, uh, restoring Catholicity, depends on the next generation. And if you don't have a way to educate them, uh, a way to get them in line, a way to really rebuild something, then all of this effort, all of these battles are for nothing if we can't pass it down to our children. And I'm I'm hoping to share today that what we're doing in classical education, although it is viewed as a new movement, is actually returning back to what the church fathers gave to us, particularly in the movement of St. Benedict and St. Bede, and the British church, particularly our Celtic ancestors, are the experts in classical education. So it makes sense that Anglicans would pick this up again today.
0: Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, well, maybe maybe just to start, let's start there with the, the historical roots of classical education. Because I think some people, they might say, okay, there's public school, there's private school, there's classical school. And they kind of see them as three modern expressions But from what you're indicating, classical education has a historic, deeper root that's rooted in the the thinking of church history. So what are the historical roots of classical education?
1: Yeah, I'm just going to ask that people listening will be able to suspend their modern dialectic for a minute. Because most people, like you said, come into the conversation of education saying you either choose to be a a plumber and go to a trade school or you go to a a university and become become some kind of professional, a doctor, a lawyer. Uh, and that's never how education worked before it was really industrialized in the last century and a half. Um, so what did people do prior to that? And uh, I think that whenever I start a conversation on classical education, going back historically, I asked a question about, you know, think about the great minds that you respect of the last 500 years. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, even if you don't agree with everything that they put forward, You could recognize that they were well-read, they understood the Greek fathers, they understood uh, history and they were able to write and even their penmanship was rather nice. But what kind of education did they have? And you'll learn that that's a classical education. But going back even further, we tend to think because we have computers, because we have technology, because we have great institutions that our education is superior. But the reality is uh, a generation ago, all of our high school students took Latin. Today, our school is the only one in this county that teaches Latin. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. Why is it so difficult for us today? Um, And then just in general, we tend to have this misidentified uh, hope or misidentified pride that somehow our education system today is better. Yet, though our literacy rates seem to be higher, people are not as smart as they were a thousand Mm -hmm. years ago. Uh, But there's also a sense in which as Christians, if we go back, and understand the purpose of education in the earliest centuries of the church, it wasn't a utility. Education was not just about getting a job, getting a paycheck. It wasn't just about how do we earn and consume. It used to be about what we call it today, humanities. What does it mean to truly be human and explore music and art alongside math and science? So there's, there's two things we could talk about with the history here, uh, but primarily we should look at the context that we are in right now. Many people are in despair over the state of education. Uh, they think that we've lost our universities. I know a stone's throw from here. We have UC Berkeley, uh, UC San Francisco. Uh, we have the, the greatest uh, bulwarks of liberalism in the country, just right around the corner for me. Even Stanford, of course, uh, is as a stronghold for things like Black Lives Matter and Marxist theology. But... If you're a Christian and you object to to those things, then I think you recognize something about the near future, uh, that somehow the Christian capital that our culture has been running off of is gonna run out. And we're near the edge of collapse, the end of what our Puritan fathers put in this nation or uh, of what Western civilization has given to us. So what happens when this fails? And this isn't a question that Christians have had to answer for a millennia, but they have had to answer it before. There used to be a great civilization called Rome. (laughs) And for generations, Rome was the center of knowledge and learning and power and military strength and abundance and wealth. But in the fourth century, it collapsed. And in that vacuum, which I imagine our generation may not see, but our children's or their children's generation may see a collapse of our civilization, how do we rebuild and there's a great movement that rises in the ashes of the fall of the roman empire and that is the monasticism of the rule of saint benedict and everything that belongs to classical education finds its roots in the rule of saint benedict and i'm sure this is a rule that you're familiar with of course
0: yeah yeah very very much so that, that's awesome yeah unpack that for us because I think a lot of people will their, their brain when they think of education generally, but even if they go more specifically and think of classical education, they're not going to immediately associate it with monasticism out of all things. So right. yeah, if you could unpack that, that would be wonderful.
1: <laughs> right. So think about what education is attempting to do uh, in the ancient world is trying to pass down habits and ideals and values. And so the early Christians, when they came into conflict with, secular values, which the Roman values of the third century, very similar to the American values of the 21st oh, no. century. Uh, even cross-dressing and transgenderism were very popular. Uh, pedastry and all of the kind of strange boy love things, very similar. No. No. <laughs> but um, what we see is that the, the monks, as they retreated from the lasciviousness of the culture, uh, they were able to create a structure for learning. And so the rule of St. Benedict is is not very complicated, but it provided a a scaffolding or a structure by which we could understand how to build a community. And every monastic community that followed this rule of St. Benedict would be its own cell organized, according to a common rule, a common life. If you're familiar with monasticism in general, you recognize monks choose a rule and they try to follow that. And that's how they, they keep their order what Benedict was able to do in the midst of the chaos of the fallen apart empire, right? There's no more police uh, under the empire, no more common law, no more judges, no more courts. So what held everything together? It was the monks and they established schools. They established scriptoriums, places place where they copied. And so in the hands of these weak monks, <laughs> weak in the sense of they didn't hold the sword. They didn't hold uh, great degrees. They didn't hold great amounts of wealth. They were often committing lives of poverty, uh, these monks were able to grab the next generation, say, copy this ancient text over and memorize it. And there's lots of different things about the the monastic order and particularly the rule of St. Benedict that trade into why uh, Western civilization flourished. But what's important to recognize is that this form of monasticism spreads all throughout Western Christendom. And it makes its way all the way to the Celtic Islands, and it forms little monasteries. And when these monks form their little communities, the people build their cities around the monks' teachings. And so these became centers where you came to learn, to study, to read. This is where literacy, and more importantly, this is where our cultural heritage was preserved. How did we keep the ancient Greek writing? How did we keep the ancient Latin letters? How did we keep these myths and fairy tales and fables alive? How do we keep the scriptures? Through these benedictine monasteries who handed them down. Now there's lots of different fun stories about that, but the central origin, the most important part that set Christianity apart from any other cultic movement of the first five centuries was we had monks who built a structured order. um, And that monasticism provided a basis for education for children, particularly uh, not wealthy children and elevated the social classes through Christendom so that they became mm. the next generation of power holders in the midst of that Roman vacuum.
0: Wonderful. Yeah, that, that's a, that's, that's very fascinating. And I think, um, yeah, I think, I think we've, we've become so accustomed to the idea of the separation between church and state that we have this idea that education is in the realm of the state, and the church, you know, handles liturgy and worship on Sundays, but the overlap of education with the church and even foundationally being a part of the life of the church is really a foreign thing in our modern context, even for many Christians. And so that's, yeah, that's, that's a wonderful thing. So, so help us with kind of going from that idea to maybe more of our modern period now, where does the classical education of today trace its philosophical roots and its philosophy for education back to that pattern.
1: Right. Well, there's, there is there uh, is not a difficult line to trace. So if we were to think about uh, education in the ancient world, we have traveling scholars, great thinkers, you, know, you have one-off teachers, men like Aristotle, men like Socrates, men like Plato. Uh, but when we think of the post-Christian, so that is after constantine world something changes and suddenly academic, academia is around city structures and particularly in the british isles we have two names that pop up that become the standard of academia not just for england but all of europe and even roman roman catholics that's oxford and cambridge mm-hmm. and so what you see is a natural progressive and direct development from these Benedictine monasteries to these centers of the cathedral, Oxford, Cambridge, these centers of religious life becoming the university, becoming the center of knowledge, and then producing scholars, uh, primarily beginning of course with priests, but then the center of all human sciences begins in these centers. And by the time you get to the, the first millennia, these institutions become the credentialing bodies for all of, Christendom, so that if you have a degree conferred by Oxford, um, then you're recognized by everybody from the Pope in Rome to Constantinople as somebody who's learned And so there was a natural progression of classical learning from the monks to Oxford to the Western world. And that becomes a, a kind of a foundation of what we would describe as liberal arts. And so as it moves from individual places, how do you replicate that? How do you take what is the heritage of Oxford and transport it to other places? Well, it comes through a, a common literary tradition. Today, we call that humanities, the great books tradition, and even the secular world tries to copy that. But it's recognizing that the Western world has kept and preserved the canon that we recognize as great Greek and Roman culture uh, and kept the canon of great Hebrew culture of the biblical literature and have said that through these works, we can derive virtue and wisdom for the next generation. This is the, the great book's curriculum that becomes the standard for how all men should be educated. And of course, mm-hmm. uh, later women as well.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's very, very interesting. Um, so, yeah, you have these, these great institutions and they're taking this kind of Benedictine um formula, if you will, and they're perpetuating it and soon this begins to spread. I, I don't want to like jump the gun too far, but what happened? Like what happened to our institutions? Why why have they gone from these great places of true education to now just synagogues of Satan practically? Um yeah. what what well, it- what thread broke first and and what <laughs> How did the dam break in other words yeah
1: well in the western world it's kind of been a global phenomenon uh, i want to yeah. tell two different sides of it so if you start from where we are today uh, our school of course is a classical school and we have in our school about 80 percent of our students are from mainland china or uh, hong yeah. kong taiwan uh, places where the british had gone and set up schools largely parochial schools and after the british empire left after you know decolonization independence movements a lot of these schools continue to function as you know, traditional classical British schools. So now when people travel to California from Hong Kong, for example, they say, oh, I love Canterbury because it's just like the British type school I grew up in. But they mm. recognize that even in Hong Kong, things have changed. So there, there was in our recent memory, as recently as 100 years ago in the United States, 50 years ago in these other countries, a classical mainline education throughout the world available. But what's happened recently uh, is through a man named John Dewey. uh, And that is the introduction of, or I should say the subversion of classical education uh, intentionally. Uh, Mm. Some scholars would describe it as dumbing us down, but there is an idea of rewriting our history, removing the classical element, and the entire purpose of education was shifted. Like I said, from uh, discovering who we are to making us useful cogs in the industrial system. So we have to look at our history in the last 150 years. What has changed most significantly? There's been an industrial revolution that has changed the idea of what a man is from somebody who can become anything, who should learn everything, who is a a poet and a pile driver, to now you're a tool. You fit on an Mm. assembly line. Your job is mechanic, uh, me- can be mechanically replicated. You're the same as everybody else. And so your education is to get you down to that common denominator as well. So lots of these uh, changes began with Dewey, uh, began with public education creating a standard idea of what the student outcome should be. So everybody should end up the same. There's also a big change uh, in America in the 1930s because of the Great Depression where education goes from you learn everything you need to know by eighth grade to now having compulsory high schools because there's competition for uh, jobs in the workforce. So if you take everybody 14 to 18 out of the workforce, there's more jobs to go around. That changes a lot of education. People you often don't take that into an account. Um, and then there's a huge labor shift in how teachers are trained. It used to be the church and the church schools were the primary drivers of what people taught values the bible was a primary curriculum but with the change of teachers now working for public employee unions now you see that the goal is to squeeze money out of the public not necessarily provide the best outcomes for the students so Mm -hmm. a number of things come together but ultimately what has most changed is the culture that created our nation was christian And as that foundation disintegrates and we don't replace the next generation of teachers, students and curriculum with that classical foundation, then it's going to get further and further away from the greatness it once had. Mm.
0: Mm -hmm. So just to make make it very concrete to for for listeners and even for me, too, because I want to make sure I really understand when you talk about the classical foundation and we have in our head kind of the modern context that we live in. Like anybody can sit down and read Plato. Anybody can sit down and read, you know, Dante and all of these great works and stuff. But what is like the methodology in the way in which these are taught in the way in which these are brought forth and studied within a classical setting that would differ from say a liberal institution that still might have those read, but, there's no actual <laughs> education taking place. There's no actual virtue being cultivated. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, I think the primary, the primary place, and uh, this is going to be a little bit of a theological issue that your audience will get, um, is the nature of humankind, right? So what is man's nature? And for <laughs> all of Western history, from Constantine to the last hundred years, we have lived with a consensus in Western Christendom that man has basically fallen and the way that we translate this in my grammar school is we're training vipers in diapers right so kids are basically fallen uh john milton who is considered you know one of these pioneers in english classical education movement uh, he described that the primary purpose of education what's the point of all of this is to undo the damage of our first parents you know we're unlearning the effect of sin so education's primary purpose is what the scripture describes, it: didactic, teaching us the knowledge of the law and how we're sinners and how to escape uh, the consequences of that and how to live holy lives under the the freedom and grace of Christ. So if that is the chief end of education, and if we also echo the words of St. Paul who says, Jesus is the source of all wisdom, once we get to a, a point in our culture where those things are moved away, now we see a movement in public education who says, Johnny can do no wrong. Kids are basically Mm. good. I often remind parents that even the word kindergarten has this implicit humanist bias that uh, kindergarten German for uh, garden of child, right? So the idea Mm. that children are basically good, and we're just going to coax out the good stuff from them. Classical education is the exact opposite. It says, Children are basically bad. You got to tell them they're bad and train the good into them. Mm. The values and morals, the ethics that the child needs have to be taught. And they come from some objective and ontologically real place that is outside of their individuality. So they need a God. (laughs) They they need something to come down to their imminence and say, hey, there is more to life than you. Um, So that becomes a big issue and when you look at the difference between what makes a classical school and a public school that's going to change a whole bunch of habits it's also going to change how you approach teaching habits and uh and how you teach different subjects so for example one of the debates going on today that if i say this you'll recognize it it's how do we teach math do we use old school arithmetic Or do we do these common core nonsense, right? (laughs) And so you see these complicated math problems coming home in the public schools where the children are taught, well, this is why two tens equal this many, you know, single. And it's this weird convoluted thing about how to add or how to subtract. What they're trying to do is explain the why, the reasoning, the logic, the meaning behind math before the actual concrete elements of it. In the classical method, we say, there are particulars, you have to memorize them. (laughs) You have to memorize one plus one, two plus two. Same thing with subtraction, multiplication, division. There are particulars that you must memorize. They're outside of you, you're not gonna get to know them. And that this kind of approach to education says uh, that the teacher's in charge, she has some wisdom or he has some wisdom that he's passing down to you. Where the humanist approach to education says, man basically has everything he needs he's his own god his own source of wisdom and whatever he says is true we're just trying to derive that from him now Hmm. that's an extreme juxtaposition but at the very core i would say every difference between a classical school and modern education can be traced back to that difference in human nature
0: Hmm. yeah that's that's very very good um makes me think of uh the the very first chapter of calvin's institutes where he He speaks to the fact that, you know, we technically, I'm going to be paraphrasing poorly here, but in other (laughs) words, we derive our understanding of the world and our meaning by first knowing God. God gives us that meaning, and thus we can then go into the world and experience the world and know the world. But the meaning comes from God, not from us, you know, placed upon whatever we come in contact with. So, yeah, there does seem to be um, just on an observational level that uh, that reality. um...
1: Yeah. And there are, of course, pedagogical differences as well. Uh, So, for example, classical education usually divides up the stages of development, Uh, something that is popular, but it's not, of course, uh, canon. I mean, not every Christian who believes in classical education has to think this way but uh, something called the Trivium, Dorothy Sayers would organize classical education into basically three stages of your life. That there's the grammar stage where we're putting together the pieces and there's a a logic stage where we start to understand why these things work. And then a rhetoric stage where then we're able to articulate our own views and own opinions based on what we've learned and what we've processed. Uh, And that represents different ways of learning in different stages. So for example, if you're training a, a first grader, You start with basic vowel sounds, you start with uh, phonics blends, you teach them how to read. And then as they get a little older, maybe fifth, sixth grade, they get to this logic stage. Now that they know how to read, they're writing their own poetry. They're writing their own stories. They're writing their own essays. They're able to process things. And then when you get to the rhetoric stage, this is high schoolers, maybe freshmen in college, you got them on the debate. They're doing devil's advocate, but there's a progression that different stages of human development learn in different ways, uh, which is very different than how most modern education is organized. Most modern Mm -hmm. education is a race race to uh, particularization, right? It's a race towards specialization. It's, all right, let's find out what you're good at, and then we'll spend your entire career on that one thing. Now, you get through uh, your four years of high school, you're going to be a doctor, now you're going to spend another six years Focusing on focusing on your one specialization, the right earlobes cancers, right? So whereas oh. the idea behind classical education is a more well-rounded individual who does all the parts of, of human knowledge, not just one particular part, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Oh, that makes that makes a lot of sense. So that that leads to another question. Um, and this is my, so both of my parents are educators. My mom was a Montessori school teacher and my dad uh, teaches in a public school system and (laughs) is looking forward to retiring at some point soon. I can say that um, confidently. (laughs) Um, But (laughs) one of the things that they both noticed and that I've noticed as well is as things have kind of moved in a downward trajectory, there is a, how do i say this one size fits all kind of method mm. within the public school systems where the individuality of the person in terms of actually building into that the strengths and the unique aspects of that person uh, is just sit down do this move to the next thing sit down do this and there needs to be that structure because there's an objectivity that binds all of us we're not all just subjectivists and the way that we can go about things, but to a certain extent, I'm curious to know in the classical method, if there is a, a kind of leaning into the particularities of each individual as they express them through education and what that would look like.
1: Yeah. Well, to, to kind of finish up what you were saying, though, uh, the yeah. goal is one size fit all, but what the results in public education have shown is that that one size is a target goal and it fits very few. And so yes, when we look yeah. at the results, they have a, a narrow picture of what they want our children to become, but the reality is very few are becoming that goal. And the vast majority of students, whether it's because of uh, you know, socioeconomic factors or just where they were born in the country or the kind of parents they have, that because they don't fit that public school goal or model or <laughs> ideal, they're getting left behind. And they're being told that they're not good enough. And who they are inside, who God made them to be is being lost because of this narrow defined idea of education. Now, in the other side, the classical side, I want to imagine I use an illustration when I train my teachers of uh, putting on a wheel uh, on a car. So you have, of course, any of you who've changed a spare tire, now you take the lug nuts off, and you pull the tire off, put the new tire on, uh, and there's a special way you have to put the nuts back in. Uh, you can't go straight in a, a circle pattern because then your, your tire will be off. You have to go in a crisscross pattern, a little star pattern based on however many lug nuts you have. And the idea is that the balancing of the tire on the, on the axle requires, you have to push it in over on this side, push it back in, tighten it up. And that star pattern makes sure it's leveled up. And I said, this is exactly what we do when we're teaching our school. We're gonna have some students who are naturally gifted in mathematics. And the public school is gonna say, you're good at math. And I say, you're not allowed to say that. (laughs) (laughs) You're gonna say, good job, well done, uh, keep working. But now we're gonna balance you. That child who's really good at math is gonna have some other weakness. We're gonna spend some other time on that. And so the classical school must say, that math is equal to art, or that yeah. science, if they're really good, it must be equal to music. And so the student must be able to go in from singing in choir, next, doing their common factorials, next, identifying the birds of the, you know, different species, next, going through and playing their handbells, right? There has to be this balance of the human identity, because you're not made. As a brain on a stick to borrow uh, from uh, so some of our our Augustinian theologians who are not so popular anymore but uh, we 're not a brain in the stick I, I hope you know who i 'm talking about but <laughs> but you 're not a brain on a stick you 're a full body and mm. uh, we 've even we 've devalue the humanness, the fleshliness, the incarnation aspect of our character when we say hands are either good for typing on a computer or holding a hammer. It's like, no, they're meant for holding a pencil and writing poetry. They're meant for feeling uh, (laughs) the clay in your hands as you make pottery. They're meant for swinging the handbell. They're meant for pulling your trumpets, you know, taps back and forth. There's an idea that when we study, when we learn, when we're educated, we're embodying Uh, the creation. And that's really an essential part, I think, of Christ's redemption. Christ took on human flesh, um, and he comes to restore what was made good in those first days of creation. When God says Mm. it was good, and Christ says it's finished, we can now live and educate, knowing that all things have been restored to their idemic glory. Um, And I think that's really one of the the encouraging parts that has made classical education so popular. It's because you know, if you get a classical education and you decide you want to be a doctor, well, you got a head start. (laughs) If you get a classical education and you decide you want to be an auto mechanic, you're going to have to be a great father. You're going to be a a great member of your church, a great member of your community because you're well read. Whereas it seems as though we don't trust the people who go to trade school to be our city councilmen. We don't trust Mm. uh, the people who are, you know, work with their hands to be our president. They have to be you know these special ruling classes, and classical education says the whole human, all of life for the whole human, and educating every part of our humanity.
0: Yeah, yeah, d- dig dig into that just a little bit more because I think that that is a really important thing. Is like thinking about like the telos of the education. You know, you have the public school systems that their approach is we're going to. Fit you into this box so that you come out the other end, an automaton that can work and be a benefit to society in this very specific area or this very specific area. So you end up with this imbalance where you do have... It's actually funny because you look at a lot of the social issues of today where people are like, you know, this minority group is over here and they're struggling in this way and these people over here. And I think a lot of the root of that is embedded into the fact that the education system is not seeking to build the whole human so that everybody in a sense is being formed together in their humanity towards that proper end. And so people are just being spit out into the world with a very, very small particular skill set, if that if they've even paid attention at all, to pick up any skill set at all. Um, It sounds like the classical education model, not only is it seeking to try to form the full human to be a benefit to society just on a practical front, but actually like on a on a virtue Christian, deeply Christian front as well. So just dig into that a little bit more, because I think that's very, very important.
1: Yeah. And so I think the the first Kind of illustration you had about growing up public school. I was public school educated as well. So were my parents. Um, So if you ever read any of my blogs or anything online and I use improper grammar, you can blame the public school. Uh, But (laughs) some people will go through my sermons now and find all of the evidence that I was public educated. No, uh, the... There's the it's really visible when you go into public school, you got all your classes in a nice row. Where did that come up with? You know, it's, it's like farming ideas. Um, you put them in a nice row. You put the teacher in the front. It's factory assembly line education. Um, not that there's anything wrong with having your seats in rows. I mean, sometimes if you've got 30 kids in a class, you've got to do it. But it speaks to the goal. Like you said, the telos. Uh, there's a great cartoon uh, where... There's a student in line with a bunch of students behind him. The first student has a little round thought bubble above his head, and the teacher has a pair of scissors, and she's cutting that thought bubble. And that's what the picture of modern American education is. The teacher forms how the student should think. Uh, And that's not at all what classical education is supposed to be. Classical education is exposing the student to how other people think, and then you get to decide... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> mm. what matches the virtues that you've been instilled in you how you've been programmed to think what is good true and beautiful and if you're exposed as a as a young person uh to enough of the scripture to enough of the ancient wisdom to enough of what it means to be uh living out the golden rule then you'll quickly identify uh those virtues in everything you're working through um so classical education of course as we've discussed is a is a pedagogy it's a way of teaching so it's Going through and teaching habits, I would compare it a lot to um, how the Stoic philosophers would teach. Uh, The Stoics, of course, talked about anything worth doing is worth suffering to get there. And so at the beginning of classical education, you got to work, suffer, develop good habits to actually learn. And that's really coinciding with what our Lord calls us to be, uh, disciples, right? The the idea of being a student is very similar to that kind of stoic philosophy of submitting yourself to something greater than yourself. And inside the great books tradition is this idea that somebody who came before you, uh, as Chesterton would call it, the the democracy of the dead, has more wisdom for you to submit yourself to. And then Mm. once you get past that that part of it, you can start making your own decisions. Uh, But Mm. beyond that, there is a sense in which classical education has the ability to do what Hebrew education always intended. If we go to the book of Deuteronomy, there's this idea that the word of God, the law is like a frontlet to our eyes and that the people of God would wake up, they'd put it on their doorposts, they'd have it on their foreheads, they'd have it everywhere and they they would surround themselves by the word of God. They would develop a habit that what virtues they wanted inside of them, they would surround themselves with externally. Um, And unfortunately, our Our public schools believe this, but in the opposite direction. They (laughs) surround themselves with external negatives, with external vices, with external poisons, and that's what comes out of their system. And so classical education must seek to do the exact opposite by surrounding our kids with opportunities to cultivate virtue, to experience uh, the beauty of the ancient world through its music, art, poetry, uh, all of those great pieces of literature, so that they can truly identify with what goodness is. Now that's tough. And I think as somebody who came uh, publicly through the public schools, coming into classical education kind of feels like stepping into the deep weeds, right? Um, There's a lot of uh, hoity toity folks who want to talk about Cicero and whatnot, or people who are full of themselves who want to yammer about the the values of Hellenistic thought or some weird stuff like that. You know how how it is in the classical (laughs) education world. But um, There is a a real sense in which the classical education world provides the people who would not otherwise be exposed to it an opportunity to step up out of their previous uh, learning experiences. It says, what belonged to previous generations is also available to you. And I think that's uh, something Christians have offered with the gospel as well.
0: Yeah. That's wonderful. Um, I, I'm curious, too, because one, one of the, the interesting tensions that you've seen um, develop between uh, the family unit and the education systems of the day is parents are showing up in uh, your state out of all places. You know this all too well. Parents are showing up and going, what's going on? Little Jimmy is now a girl and you didn't tell us and you're not communicating with us. The education system is like, hey, we're raising your kids now. What do you guys? What do you guys think this is? You think you're you're actually parents that have a right to your child and their well being? Obviously, the classical education is also built with that Christian foundation, so the family unit is valued and upheld. And and um, I'm curious to know within the philosophy how the school comes alongside the family to support and help in the education of the children without this idea that we are replacing the family and you're Mm -hmm. sending your kids here for us to raise them and do your job um so if you wanted to touch on that yeah
1: absolutely well there's a there's a principle that most christians don't pay attention to um and that is that the the state expands until it reaches something that checks its power so Mm -hmm. the state will expand and the family will shrink uh yeah the, the state will expand and the church will shrink and the only way to check the power of the state, and I don't mean California, I don't mean the US government, I don't mean communist China, I mean all external forces of authority. This was true in Christ's age, but the sphere of the state, and that is government authority, will expand. You know, you can go back to the idea of absolute authority expands or you know, this this idea that authority expands unless something pushes back up against it. And historically Christians have said that the family is the greatest check against the rise of the state. But as we've seen in the last century and a half, the state entrance into education took away a lot of the parental authority. And one day Christians woke up and they realized that their kids were getting abortions without their permission. They were going off and getting sex ed without their permission. They were transitioning without their permission. And the state had so expanded that it had taken over the roles, the paternal roles of the parents. And so you have to ask the question, well, who owns the family now? And so, like you said, many Christians have gone to the school board and said, hey, that's my kid. And and, um, their response from the state has been, like Hillary Clinton, well, it takes a village to raise a child, right? (laughs) And so um, the the Christian school, though, uh, shouldn't be seen as the same type of supplanting role in the family. In fact, when families come to my school, I often tell them, you know, the ideal situation would be that you homeschooled your own kids, but... uh, you're not an expert in all things, and I'm not an expert in all things. And if we as Christians covenant together, that is gather together with our various expertise, you can give my child your expertise and I can give your my child your, you know, these these kind of things can be traded in our community. And the way that we've done that with the classical school is we've developed a curriculum. You've gone and got a different job. You're working over at Microsoft. You send a check for 10 grand. You pay for all the experts to come in and teach your kids that you would choose. Um, and so that is... Strong in one sense, because the more students who are outside of the the public schools are demonstrating the power of Christ's wisdom outside of those kind of bureaucratic systems. I think we all know a homeschool kid who did better on the spelling bee. We all seen the classical school kids and how they were able to get to universities without going through AP classes. We've all heard them do their Latin recitations. Somehow these classical schools are able to do it better than the public schools, often with one third or even less than the budget I know here here in our school uh, we we charge eleven thousand dollars per student. the school across the street the public school gets about eighteen grand in state funding for a student so they get like almost double the amount of money and they get yeah. worse results what's up with that yeah. right <laughs> but the other part of that is uh, I think parents uh, have, have a have a responsibility to make sure that the future of Christendom is placed in the hands of their children. Um, and that we have to have a multi-generational view yes. that the education of our children is connected to the longevity of Christendom, that there will be no Christendom in four generations, three generations. If we surrender all of our kids to Caesar, I think it's Vodi uh, Voddie who says uh, parents are su- parents send their kids to Rome five days a week and are surprised when their kids come back like Caesar. I, I, I'm yeah. probably giving that quote a little bit off, but um, how, how many hours are they spending in the public school being told the dogma of the humanists? And then they come home and maybe they do some family devotion around dinner table. Maybe, maybe they go to church on Sunday. Maybe, maybe they're part of an Awana club. Maybe they go to youth group, but even if they did all of those things, it's a few hours of passive Christian entertainment versus 40 hours a week of indoctrination.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to I want to kind of transition for the last uh, part of the podcast into kind of that practical, uh, very almost a very post millennial kind of outlook looking in the future and saying, Hey, Christ is going to reign until all his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. And he's entrusted us as the means by which that takes place. Um, I want to start by saying um, I know a lot of people, especially when the whole COVID thing hit and schools started shutting down, a lot of people just saw that as a time to pull their kids out of school and started to think more seriously about homeschooling and things like that. I know there's a lot of people who are in areas that don't have classical Christian schools. And so homeschooling is their option and they're going, okay, I love classical education, but I don't know much about it. I don't feel very equipped to do it. How would you encourage people who are in a situation where they have the ability to homeschool their children? um, How can they adopt some of these uh, ideas from classical education and implement it into their own homeschool curriculum? Yeah,
1: no, absolutely. Now, I'm going to say something that's going to come across as kind of uh, attacking Christians, but... You ever notice how weak modern Christians are? Like even the folks who will listen to this will say, oh, I'm, I'm a strong pedo Baptist, or I'm a strong masculine man. Uh, but then when it comes to putting your money where your mouth is, all of these Christians kind of retreat. Mm. <laughs> uh, I want people to hear that 70 years ago, uh, many places in this country, it was illegal to, to homeschool. It was a crime. It was play. It, it was a thing that you would be ostracized for your community. You would, you the government would come and investigate your family. You're some kind of weirdo. But because of those Christian sacrifice over the last you know six, seven decades, you have so many options to homeschool your kids. Uh, it's affordable. You can choose whatever you want. It can come straight through your computer. You can pick and choose to do it two days a week or five days a week. There really is no excuse for your child not to have a Christian education or a classical education today. Um, and so I say that because... Every single person will say, I can't afford it. No, there, there's a program you can afford. Go get the Ron Paul curriculum. You'll be fine. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> you know, uh, and if you have a little bit of money, get the memoria curriculum, or get the logo school, or get, you know, Veritas. Or and if they say, Oh, well, I I can't teach my kids. Oh, there's every subject has somebody who's going to lecture your kids or somebody you can hire. Them. This is finances, ability, and access. Uh what Silicon Valley has done for Christendom can never be undone. They have opened up the education <laughs> Pandora's box and uh, classical education is now more accessible and more affordable. And uh, there really is no excuse why any parent doesn't think their child deserves this. Um, right. It's it's like, uh, imagine uh, not giving your child uh, a medicine because, Oh, it's too expensive. Oh, they're going to die. Uh, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> Maybe 500 years ago, these types of things have been unheard of. But today, there's really no excuse. Uh, yeah. But I think a, a primary perspective that I would have, not to, to knock on our Christian families too hard, uh, but is that the role that the Bible gives to parents uh, is described in the Psalms as a man holding a quiver of arrows. And uh, the, the Psalm says that uh, blessed is the man you know, children are blessed of the Lord, blessed the man whose quiver is full of them. And there is a, a sense here that the scripture imagines that your children are for war. Your children aren't for you to coddle. They're not for your prizes. They're not for to show off of how smart and how successful you are. Your children aren't for your uh, retirement program. Your children aren't to you know, bring your name glory. The children that you have are God's arrows to extend his kingdom. And that's mm. why he gave them to you <laughs> and so what education primarily is is the sharpening of the arrows that god gave you mm. and every parent who takes their kid and puts them in a public school is breaking that arrow in half every parent who puts their arrow and puts that kid in a subpar you know government school is jabbing that arrow into the ground and doling it so that it will no longer be effective against the enemy mm. uh, and i know that's probably a, a, a stark way to put it but what if instead you put your kid in a classical school, <laughs> gave them a real education and you're sharpening that arrow. Mm. You're adding, you know, a little feather to the back. So it goes a little bit further. You're rigid, you know, making sure that that arrow is rigid so that it can attack right at the yeah. breast of the enemy. Uh, <laughs> mm. But again, that's a, a perspective difference, but there's a, a wonderful man uh, from Nicaea Presbyterian church uh, down in uh, Niceville, Florida. no, well, near Niceville, Florida, but his, uh, Pastor McIntyre, he was associated with the Calcedon Foundation for many years. And because you mentioned uh, post-millennialism, you know, he had a great book I'd recommend to anybody interested in Christian education at all. Uh, I think the full title is How to Get Rich in Christian Education. uh, And it's kind of a tongue in cheek. uh, Mm. But there is a sense in which uh, Christians pretend to be losers when it comes to this part of our culture we behave as though our education facilities are supposed to be nonprofits you know i have every year non christians knocking on my door saying hey do you take do you take non christians i say yeah you can pay me for me to disciple your child <laughs> <laughs> but then down the street you know the first baptist church they're shelling out thousands of thousands of dollars in their budget Begging Christian families to come to their VBS so that they can tell them the same Bible story they told them 10 years previously, right? Um, So, in the matter of what the Christian responsibility is, if you can create a program that actually speaks to the needs of this culture, and I think classical education is the panacea that the near collapse of Rome state that the United States is in today, um, then you're going to attract non-christians to your community and not Mm. only that they're going to pad the bottom line of your budget they're going to pay for your pastor your priest they're going to support the teachers in your community they're going to help finance your school and you're going to convert them and their families and you're going to grow the kingdom so much of christendom is this sheep trading game but education has the opportunity to be a real sheep training from, you were once a wolf, now you've turned into a sheep because I educated you in Latin, the Bible, and then chapel. (laughs) Mm. Uh, But again, there's there's a, a part of that that's meant for parents and part of that's meant for church leaders, of course.
0: Yeah. Well, let's go to the church leaders thing because there are a lot of churches and there are a lot of churches with pretty healthy congregations and healthy budgets that could probably start to organize something like this. So the first question I would ask is, why do you think we're not seeing more classical schools popping up? I, I mean, I think it's, it's definitely growing and there are more people that are aware of it, but we're still not seeing a lot of classical schools popping up, relatively speaking. Uh, so maybe mm-hmm. I'll start with that. Why, why do you think churches are just not seeing that this is such a foundational thing that really is going to shape the next couple generations um, and our culture as a whole?
1: I think that it goes back to a, a quote from, again, G.K. Chesterton, who talks about the the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. And it's been examined and found very difficult. I think I'm getting that basically right. I, you, you can ch- ch- check that exactly. But the idea is um, that in, in the endeavor of a Christian school, it requires work, commitment, sacrifice. And as Francis Schaeffer would often talk about, American Christians today, what they love more than Jesus is personal peace and affluence. And the moment you start rocking the boat and saying, Mom, uh, I know you love dropping the kids off at the government school and they get babysat and it doesn't cost you anything. And you can go to Disneyland twice a year and, you know, <laughs> whatever this extra money you're saving goes to. Uh, you have a responsibility to train your kids or to homeschool your kids or to give up Disneyland once a year so you can pay for your kids to go to uh, a private school. Um, and that's a sacrifice. Um, it also, I think, it's, it's not a connection. A lot of parents think, well, I went to public school. I went to university. I got a good job. It was good enough for me. Why does my kid need something else? Yeah. Uh, why do I want my kid to be the weirdo? Um, and there's this idea that homeschool kids or that classical education school kids are the strange ones. Mm-hmm. But it's not the homeschool kids that are using the litter box in the classroom. It's not the <laughs> classical school kids that are coming to school dressed like cats and furries and wearing tails. It's not right. the homeschool kids who are coming to school uh, you know, or the classical kids who are coming to school and saying, Mom, I'm no longer a boy. I'm now a girl. I've I've mutilated my genitals. Um, And so in a time when everything is so backwards, I think uh, we have to embrace a little bit of the weird, uh, the way our early Christian fathers did and said, come away from the city into the monastic retreat, rebuild in the ashes so that when they come to their senses, because just like Rome, you know, they fiddled while Rome burned. uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, Once it collapses, who's going to be there? to put the brick upon brick and rebuild. And it's not going to be the person who went through the rudimentary uh, phonics program at 12th grade at the inner city public school who still really can't do math, who can barely survive in his job at McDonald's. He's not going to be the guy who rebuilds Western Christendom. It's going to be the kids uh, who went through a true classical pedagogy, who remember the greatness of what the world could be and, and put brick upon brick for them so there's a i think there's a call there um, to them but why haven't why haven't parents done it and it's because the same reason we haven't built great cathedrals the same reason uh we haven't conquered all of the heathens of this land the same reason why there is not people lining up for prayer book services because anything that requires sacrifice is going to narrow down the people willing to make those sacrifices Mm -hmm. but history is Uh, remembering not the people who went along with the easy route, but those who were willing to to stand alone and make those sacrifices and build, even though the odds were stacked against them.
0: Yeah. Mm, Amen. Amen to that. I think that that's absolutely true. And yeah, I I pray that we do see more people recognizing, uh, I I think, I think we're in a time where you'll have two reactions. Either one is everything's collapsing. Oh my goodness. The world's ending. (laughs) I might as well just go down with it or people who will mm-hmm. say, wow, what a golden opportunity we have right now. Um, and I think, yeah. I think that's, that's the attitude that Christians need to take. And that's, I think the attitude that we see as consistent with church history, all throughout history, you know, 11, I, I think it was Doug Wilson who said, uh, you have 11 apostles on a hill and Jesus says, okay, see the Roman empire, go conquer it. And then they went out <laughs> and they did, <laughs> they did. Yeah. You know, it's like yeah. 11 guys. And so you have to think, if they if they looked at this beast of Rome and were able to say, okay, we believe through the power of Jesus that we can do this, and we can look at our collapsing and burning culture and say, by the power of Christ, we can rebuild as well. And I do believe that we need to wake up to the reality that it does start with education. It really does. Um, yeah, yeah,
1: even even more than that, I think... Uh, If you're one of those 11 apostles and you looked, you could easily be overwhelmed by the idea of overcoming Rome. And I think their challenge was much greater than ours. Uh, The reality is, if you can put together three or four students and teach them how to read... You've already excelled beyond what the public schools doing. <laughs> the barrier to entry is so low that right. basically anybody who says A says A ah, and one plus one equals two is going to create a superior school than what's currently being promoted in right. in the West it's, today. Yeah.
0: Don't uh, don't but, forget though that one plus one equaling two might be a little too racist. We can, we can't go there. <laughs> so,
1: <laughs> but but yeah, that's um, the other the other thing to say is I think uh, we're we're in a bull market. Right. If um, we have all of the capital like we Christians preserved Plato, Aristotle, we preserved all of that heritage. That's ours. Yeah. Uh, we preserved this, you know, 2000 years of Christian history. We built the universities. We built healthcare. We built women's suffrage. We built the end of slavery. Like all of these things are the consequence of our system. And now we get to here at this time in history when uh, we have all of that capital and the world is hungry for solutions and Christians at this time saying, we don't know what to give them. It's like, (laughs) we've we've got the solutions. This is a bull market. Put it forward and we will win. I don't know why so many Christians are afraid to just say, Christ knows the answer.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. 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 Amen to that. Yeah, I, I, I really I really hope that that people will hear this and that it will, because um, it's even convicting me, you know, I think there's a lot of areas where I've had inaction where there should have been action. And so it's a it's a wake up call, I think, to all Christians that, yeah, it's, it's time for action. the other
1: part. The other part of action that I think is really helpful about the school is it, it brings you out of the clouds. Um, mm. So Here in the Anglican world, we can fight about diocesan and provincial issues, which jurisdiction is correct. We can have all these debates about what the Pope said. Or um, in politics, we can argue about Trump's hair or Biden's teeth or his earlobes. And we have all of these discussions that are very outside of our control. And we really love to have those discussions, don't we? Like we spend all day on Fox News arguing about things about votes that won't affect us, for people who don't care about us, for things that will never change or affect our lives at all. But with the school, you're talking about local people. These are your neighbors. Mm. Uh, these are the, your kids' friends. These are your own children. And my four kids, I'm by being involved in the education here, I'm choosing the community my kids grow up in and mm. forming the community my kids grow up in. And uh, it kind of forces you to be evangelistic in a way that if you hunker down in a you know, traditional church, you don't have to do. The pastor job is to evangelize, you just show up. But if you're part of a Christian school or starting a Christian school or joining a Christian co-op, suddenly every week you're reminded, every day when you drop your kids off, that, that the local community that matters. It's these kids and the 365 days here in this zip code at this time that really matters. And that the change for the future Happens not in Washington, D.C. It doesn't happen in Sacramento, California. It happens in my local school. And that I can have confidence that the promises that Christ make to his church extend to those children who are baptized and raised and educated in his church. That the Mm. gates of hell will not prevail against my son, Athanasius. That my daughter, Assumpta, will raise up and be called blessed like the Blessed Virgin, that my son Basil could follow in the footsteps of the great Basil the Great, and repudiate heretics, and preach the power of the Holy Spirit, because that's his heritage. This Christendom belongs to them, and just as it was victorious for these saints of our ancient days, it will be victorious if we give this same tool set to our children, and apply it in the same world. Uh, We have the evidence that the that they were conquerors using this before, why would we deprive them of these tools that allow them to smash demons,
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: to, to scare yeah. away all all of the prophets and and really to establish a, a bulwark in this world? It's worked before. Why do we doubt it now?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's that's so good. Yeah. Cause I, I do think that even just with our technological advances and stuff, we've become so uh, globalized in everything that we do. We're focused on all of the events going on in the far reaches of the world that, even a hundred years ago, we would have had to work very hard to access any information. I I can go online and find out what the Pope ate for breakfast. You know, like I shouldn't be able to know those kind of details. And it's like when we when we go too far in that kind of space we completely neglect community. We have these cookie cutter neighborhoods with houses just stacked upon each other and neighbors who don't know one another, don't know each other's names. They just go to work every day and then they come home. And you know, it used to be that the community that you were in, those were the people that you did life with. Those were the people you worshiped on Sundays with. Those were the people that you went to school with, that your kids grew up with. And I do think that that kind of model is going to be part of what helps rebuild society and the classical education does kind of bring things back to that local level where it's like i mean it used to be that you you would work really hard not to offend the milkman because you needed your milk and now we go to a grocery store and we just purchase stuff without any sort of face-to-face interaction Knowing the people who are providing the goods for us, so obviously I'm extending the conversation beyond what we're talking about, but I think it's all very relevant to that idea that you know the local community and emphasizing that, um, especially when we're thinking about our children and the education that they're receiving and who they're around and who their influences are, that's massively, massively important. Yeah, and
1: I think that the the education has also very much connected with the ritualization of our children. Mm -hmm. You know. I have the pleasure, if somebody's born in my parish, I baptize that child. And I say, you belong to this community. You're gonna be raised in our school. When you get to be eight years old, I'm gonna bring you to the bishop. And I'm gonna say, I have catechized this child. Their parents have been here supporting them. And they're gonna say the the words of the confirmation. The bishop's gonna lay hands on him. And then that gentleman's gonna grow up. Uh, He's gonna find his vocation, his calling, what God made him to be. He's gonna find a woman. (laughs) They're gonna get married. They're gonna come back to my altar. I'm going to marry them, and they're going to continue that cycle right here in this parish. Yeah. Um, that That's the ritualization that began in our education. It's been replaced and supplanted, subverted by the public schools who say, your parents don't own you. Come, your, your new ritual is an abortion or birth control. Your new ritual is you know sexual idolatry or all of these different things that they now have your new ritual is going off to university and rejecting your parents. Your new ritual is uh, rejecting God and, you know, taking your degree and credentials from the state. Um, it's it's very obvious that the Christian worldview is the thing in the crosshairs here with public education, yet so many Christians were completely blindsided by it over these last few decades.
0: Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, so maybe maybe my final question uh, will start to bring things to a close. It's a lot to think about. Um, what is your personal favorite part about being a classical educator? What 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 drives you every day to wake up and go, man? I love doing this, and I, I'm sure we've kind of touched on some of it, but yeah,
1: yeah. Well, the the ironic thing is, I was a terrible student going through school, <laughs> and I remember. Uh, being in high school and thinking, oh man, I can't wait until high school's over. Then I won't have to deal with schedules and homework and any of this school stuff anymore. I'll be an adult and I'll never be stuck in a school schedule again. And then now for the last seven years, <laughs> every single week, my entire life revolves around the academic calendar. I ring the bell, I'm writing the homework assignments. Um, and you know, it's, it's kind of sisyphean in a sense, but uh, there's- there's a lot of uh, change in my spiritual life that has come as a result of me going back to lead young students. Yeah. And you know what, have, what really attracted me to the Anglican tradition was the rhythm of the daily office, which is, of course, also based in the monastic Benedictine order. Cramner takes the Benedictine order and moves it into just morning and evening prayer. But inside that system, which we typically understand as a religious or spiritual system is the same way of understanding how it is we learn. We learn by putting ourselves on a schedule, consistently following that schedule, developing habits according to that schedule, and doing it even when we don't feel like doing it, and expecting small, gradual changes our habits, our wants, our desires, uh, small reclamations of our human nature away from our sinful affections, away from the bondage of Satan, you know, these type of things. Whereas all growing up as a Christian, I thought oh, if only something, some spark would come down and fix me and finally get me away from my sin or finally re-enliven this, kindle this, this emotional ecstatic experience, then I could really love God. But now in a classical school, leading morning prayer, I see that the way God leads us in our intellect, developing habits piece by piece routinely is also how he develops us and disciplines us spiritually. Um, So I love the humility that the classical school teaches that I'm forever a student, um, that I'm surrounded by students who are growing up not to be forever my pupils, but my peers and uh, I'm happy to report that my son now excels me in Latin. <laughs> my, uh, and, and that's really the goal of this education is like, I'm going to get you everything that I had, son. I'm going to give it to you just like I gave you your Christian name and your Christian faith, but I'm also going to give you access to the entirety of the world that christ won for us mm. so that in your generation and your son's generation you will progressively take more and more ground for this kingdom mm. and um, so that's really the great thing about it i think it's really shaped how i've seen the way that christ works uh, you know lesson plans and uh, calendars and academic rotation and little tiny lesson by lesson is how jesus works in this world you know yeah <laughs> through mm. little little things day by day repeating the mundane um so anyway i think that's my my long-winded answer there
0: <laughs> yeah well no, that's that's a wonderful answer and i think that's a wonderful note to end on um those little steps those little things that is what is building the kingdom of god um throughout the ages and has has from the very beginning Um, the last thing is just if, if there's anybody watching this and there's something in their conscience that was pricked and they're like, wow, this is, this is very interesting. I want to know more, uh, where, where can they find you and your work and get in touch with you if they wanted to, to talk more about this subject?
1: Yeah, the school's website is canterbury.school. Um, I have a personal blog, uh, stevemacias.com. And um, if you're ever in the San Francisco Bay Area, come visit us at St. Paul's. Um, we're a traditional prayer book parish, and um, we love to have visitors.
0: <laughs> awesome, cool, yeah. And I'll make sure to link those things below. Uh, well, Father, thank you so much for coming on. This was a it was a joy to have this conversation, and uh, I hope we can do it again sometime.